This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome aboard, folks. Dr. Charles Parker. I am really excited about this episode with Core Brain Journal. We have an interesting guy who is interesting on so many levels. It's going to be hard to not say every single thing in his CV because it's so darn interesting. And what we're going to do is talk about a guy who has got a very practical, one of my favorite words is utilitarian. And he's got a very practical view of some of the things that all of us need to do to actually move forward with our insightful recovery process. Jason Eric Cross, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. So Jason is an interesting guy. I'm going to introduce him to you in just a moment. What we're going to do is say a few words about our support system, and then we're going to introduce him formally. Core Brain Journal is supported by Great Plains Laboratory. They are deep international biomedical testing leaders for improved targeted mind science details. We love the data. As both laboratory and webinar global thought leaders, they provide the most comprehensive set of hard data measurement tools for real biomedical answers beyond guesswork. And they also provide multiple, get this folks, training webinars for both the public and those medical providers who really need this additional information on how to use their data effectively in the office in any town. Check out their website for references and testing details and take note of this offer, folks. You can register over there for a complimentary test drawing and they range in value from, I think the least valued one is around 200 bucks and from organic acid testing to IgG. So go on over there and if you register, they will, they'll have a drawing and if you're selected, you'll get it, you'll be sent it out and they'll read it for you as well. So it's greatplainslaboratory.com forward slash CBJ for Core Brain Journal makes it really easy. Greatplainslaboratory.com forward slash CBJ. So let me tell you about this Jason guy. Jason Eric Ross is a licensed psychotherapist in New York and Florida. He specializes in parenting, lifestyle, trauma, and substance abuse. I mean, that is, as they say in Philadelphia, the homish booker. A qualified supervisor in Florida, Jason is the son of not one, but get this, folks, two psychoanalysts. This has become fodder for his stand-up comedy. As a writer, he has co-authored a parenting book entitled You Can Say No and Your Child Will Still Love You with his mother, Norma, along with numerous print and web articles. He's a big proponent of vulnerability and self-growth. I mean, Listen, if you don't have some felt vulnerability, there is no self-growth, folks. You're going to remain in stasis, and it has something to, yes, with narcissism, but we won't go into that right now. Jason became an actor in 2017 and recently became the first, get this, psychotherapist to portray a psychopath, Keith Jesperson, on TV in the Discovery ID channel show, Evil Lives Here. So he's doing a psychopath. With a background in personal training and fitness, Jason utilizes a very goal-oriented, mindset-based 
approach with his clients. Yes, he's going to be over on our mindset page for sure. So this is what he talks about. Personally and professionally, I'm a huge believer that people need to work much harder than they think to really get the mindset done and take the info in from social media, books, podcasts. We take in a ton of negativity and more than ever make excuses for lack of results. People need to double down. Sounds like the workout guy is talking to us. People need to double down on self-care. Being a therapist and coach is my main career. And though I have a lot of background and training, the real life issues I have faced and how I learned to better myself matter even more than previously. I have had to train my brain to work better for sure. He has to actually work at it. And that's the point. Uh, he's a trained school psychologist. He understands the intelligence of different individuals on a few fronts. He certainly challenged his brain, including becoming a professional musician. This is one of the things that is really cool. As a member of the Beatles tribute, portraying George Harrison on stage. And guys, he looks a little bit like George Harrison. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was not a reach. It was not a reach. So I'm going to let the rest of that go. And folks, I'm going to just welcome. Thanks again, Jason, for coming on board. What an interesting experience growing up. We all know how important childhood is, but to grow up with two psychoanalysts talking about the unconscious and this and that and the other thing at the dinner table, that must have been an experience. Can you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> By the time I was four years old, my father was getting his PhD. I think by the time I was eight, my mother was getting hers. Oh, so <laughs> one parent followed suit. So I was a kid who had comic books and Freud. That was what I read. <laughs> that's Most kids what? read different things. Yeah. Not me, not in my house. So that's what <laughs> my exposure was. So Superman and a superego for me. Fantastic. That must have been fun, though, because, you know, one thing that I think is really true about individuals who are in psychoanalysis when they're really on the bright side of things, they also develop a really, not only a really interesting sense of integrity and what's real and what are we going to talk about what's real. People think psychoanalysis is only imagination and fantasy, but there's a lot of reality in there. And I think there's a certain common sense aspect to well-trained psychoanalysts that were very influential in my life. And they have get this, a great sense of humor. <laughs> Very important. And often overlooked and underrated. Yes. So, so true. So true. So then how did you yourself start on your tour with, hey, I'm going to do something like this? Where did all that begin? I think it just started to germinate as soon as I knew what my parents did for a living. Mm -hmm. I got exposure in a way, you know, most kids, you know, what they have, like bring your parent to work, oh, yeah. uh, bring your parent to school, yeah. <laughs> you know, talk about what they do. Yeah, my day was a little different. <laughs> so I had a lot of exposure to it and it just sort of rubbed off on me. And there was a point where I thought maybe I'd go to medical school. Even after I had gotten my master's in psychology, things kind of fell together. And I just had this, one thing I learned is my parents helped people. That I knew. Mm -hmm. And if nothing else, that seemed to rub off, like, this is a good thing to do. I'd certainly been exposed to my parents' business, and they were also educators. They had two psychoanalytic institutes, and I attended one of them while I was an undergraduate, yes. Oh, what fun. That was different, yes. <laughs> I hadn't even gotten through sophomore year of college, and I was already taking graduate psychoanalytic classes. So I guess it just became 
innate and this is the family business. I suppose investment bankers make little investment bankers. (laughs) My parents, this is the way it went. A couple of interesting accidents happened that drew me back to the field because I wasn't sure that's where I was going to end up. Oh, you had some uh, personal issues or that sort of woke you up? Well, what happened was I finished my master's and then while debating going into medical school, I ended up getting involved in the personal training field, which actually turned into a much bigger career for me than I ever would have anticipated. When I decided to leave, what happened was I wasn't sure what I was going to do. Mm -hmm. I hadn't worked in psychology and I was asked by my mother to oversee, mentor someone on their dissertation. And this man's dissertation was all about substance abuse and recovery and I had really no exposure to it. And that's what led me back into the field in, a, in an area which if you asked me now, if I knew then what I'd be doing now, I would have said there's no chance, no way. <laughs> right, <laughs> that is a veritable morass, I've been there. You know, and what happens is it's not a place for anybody in mental health because there's a whole structure. I mean, I don't know where you are this, but I mean, my own personal opinion is they just have this whole thing against mental health. It's sort of like, we know what we're doing And we don't want you to be over there with us. And I respect what they're doing. I think the 12 steps are very valuable and very interesting. And I I get some interesting stories I won't take everybody's time to talk about in terms of my transformational experience when I got into the whole recovery thing. But I can tell you, I was persona non grata as a psychiatrist. It's like, what in the heck are you doing here? You guys are, you guys caused the trouble. I can understand the the opinion. Because I moved down to Florida, I've worked for the better part of the last 14 years in and around Delray Beach. And Mm -hmm. Delray Beach is the rehab capital of the world. So I've had a very interesting exposure given my background. And I I say this, you know, boldly being sort of what I would call a clean cut kid. My Mm -hmm. personal use of, you know, substances was really minimal to none. Mm -hmm. And I came into the field. There was a real stigma even against me to this day. So I think there's a, a fine line when you go into work in a psych hospital, which is where I was basically thrown into when I got here to train. Mm-hmm. That really opened up the doors and that took me in a different direction. So I think there's a huge stigma and I, I don't see it going away in my lifetime for sure. And I well, tell parents, start raising your kids a very particular way because no one's going to care about their mental health but you. That is so true. I mean, I think what happens is there are just so many levels of stigma because the human mind is so desirous of thinking in reductionistic reptilian terms, you know, and it's going to put you in a box and I happen to be in a psychiatrist box and you happen to be in a straight kid box. And somehow if you're a straight kid or you're a psychiatrist, you're really not one of us. And, you know, different religions do that. It doesn't matter what yes. the religion is. They cut people out. Instead of thing, bringing people in, they cut people out. You're either with us 100% or you're not with us and we can't work with you. And uh, you would think that the spiritual tradition would be one of acceptance. And certainly recovery with its 12 steps and that sort of thing. It's like, how can we actually have the larger mind and work together and do something constructive for the overall evolution of humankind, as opposed to you're out and I'm in. Right. I agree with that entirely. I think there's some level of, you know, you alluded to a little bit of narcissism earlier, I think, you know, in some capacity. I think there has to be an openness in thinking, you know, and if the mindset is closed, well, that's what you're going to get. My take has always been, maybe I figured something out and I just happened to stave off the inevitable. 
I made certain choices early, whereas maybe some peers did not. So I had a certain mindset going in and I think it protected me when, you know, things could have gotten rough during life. No one's life is perfect. So too many people have the stigma. They want to hear what they want to hear. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a proponent that everything works. You know, it's like the old chicken soup. It can't hurt. So let's use it. Well, you know, you're, you're singing my hymn because that's, that's what we sing here all the time. That's why we're having these interviews. Because we think that the public is ultimately going to change the whole mental health situation and, and remove the stigma. Because the more people are educated, the more people have a chance to listen to a guy like you who's been out there in so many different things. I mean, to be in psychoanalytic training when you're almost an adolescent <laughs> and then to go further along and be involved in recovery and, and drug and alcohol recovery, that's a whole separate reality. And then psychiatric hospital, I mean... I have been an executive medical director of a very highly esteemed HCA-owned medical psychiatric hospital, and I can tell you that is a completely different reality, walking in there with the medical professionals thinking about what they think should be done. You know, it's a whole another world right. going on. So I think we all have different realities that we come in and go out of, but I think the confluence is the fact that we are all human beings. We all have a a unified way of thinking about things in, in the sense we, we react in certain ways that are either productive or counterproductive. And if we get into habits and patterns, which I want to talk to you about, which is so interesting to have you on, we're going to make it. If we don't, we're going to remain developmentally arrested and fall off the loop, and that's going to be what it's going to be. I think we're struggling with that as we speak. So let's world, talk about world, this. We're struggling. You got some great questions that you helped me think about here, and I'm so glad that you want to talk about them. I'm going to run through them. I think it's interesting because what all of the people that we interview either send us some information of, hey, here's something that'd be fun to talk about, we can talk about it, or they say, hey, Parker, wing it. This is what I do. Ask me whatever you want to, whatever. But I think what's really cool about Jason is he said, look, these are some things that I think are really imperative. He's actually saying, look, guys, let's get this on the radar which is kind of what we, he and I were just talking about a moment ago. And one of the key things I think that's confusing for individuals is, and what I want to do is start with Jason kind of a macro, come down to more of a micro, and then end this series of questions in this interview with more of a larger picture of where we're going to go, folks. And I think that would be a really interesting conversation to have because he's already put it together in a very nice set of questions. We'll have our break as we usually do in the middle of this. But let's start with a very confounding issue that a lot of people get confused about. And I tell you, Jason, I'm making this clarification numerous times every day. First, say, well, do I have to go in psychotherapy? I don't know if I want to do in psychotherapy. And I say, well, you know, it does sound from the way you're talking to me that coaching really might be a better choice for you. So let's talk about the differences between therapy and coaching vis-a-vis -vis the evolution of the person. What's your thought about that? I think both can be really important. Both can be really effective. I think what the public doesn't understand is sometimes you really do need therapy to make change. Coaching will take you wherever you are in terms of it'll challenge your behaviors. Well, if you want this result, do this differently. Mm -hmm. However, therapy looks at why you didn't take that advice in the first place when you already knew the answer. And mm -hmm. I think people are getting away too much. And again, partly due to the stigma, I think partly due to ego, they're not looking at the why. 
the why they're doing this in the first place, their history, their past, their trauma. They don't want to look at it, and then they wonder why they're always stuck. And I don't believe coaching is always the answer for that. I think for sometimes it's actually very much not the answer. And I think it actually can be dangerous depending on who's doing it. Sometimes there are serious mental health issues, serious traumas that if the person does not address, coaching puts them in a very difficult predicament. And coaching can actually help them deny it. Yeah, what Jason's saying, folks, is that we all bring some baggage. We have some history. Jason was talking about his parents. His life with his parents and his early experiences are absolutely consequential and contributory to the wide mind that he's got, that he's talking about right here. It just didn't come out of the blue. It didn't come from one mentor that he really admired somewhere along his way. He had a whole ongoing series of infusions in terms of the way to think about things that involved, and therapy involves past patterns. What are your patterns? What are you reacting to? How did you develop that reaction pattern? Not what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? But like, how did you get this way? And what are you going to do about it? That's right. And from my perspective, people try to get into the solutions. They'll say, well, what do I do about this? You know, that's the question I'll get out. What do I do about this? And I sort of look at them to say, you probably know what the answer is. You need to figure out why the hell you're not getting to the answer in the first place. Give them the answer too quickly. They might not act on it. So having a real flexible approach, flexible mind. Certainly, I had martial arts training when I was growing up, so mm-hmm. that definitely affected my thinking and my being open. I don't think you had a choice at that point. <laughs> you know, and I think getting hit a few times, Jason, that's a whole different thing. There's being hit and there's never being hit. And when you get hit a couple times, then you think about, maybe I need to make some changes in the way I was approaching that situation. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. There's a comedian, I can't remember his name, but he basically said, there's a simple way to build humility is you either wait tables or you lose a fight. Yeah, right. (laughs) So true. I can tell you, I I did the martial arts myself for many years, and I lost a few fights. And actually, I did it as an older guy, so they were all younger guys. They wanted to kill their father. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Projection at its best. For the the moment, I happened to be the father, you know. Right. Anyway, that was a good experience. So. Good. So then let's, you hinted and alluded to this point, which I think is another absolutely germane point, And that is, I see this all the time. People come in and there is a profound stigma. You alluded to this earlier. I think it's a big, big deal. And people who listen to Core Brain Journal really want some answers. How can I work with this whole stigma thing? Where am I with what people think about me? And why is there such a stigma right now on quote-unquote, mental health and therapy. What's going on? Seems like that's the zeitgeist of our culture for, I don't know, generations. Uh, Freud died when, 30s or 40s, let's say. Mm -hmm. I can't exactly remember. Yeah, I I don't don't remember either. (laughs) Typically, certainly for men, men have always staved off therapy. And my argument is that's one of the most dangerous things for men. Not looking at your past, you're doomed to repeat it in some fashion. So, unless we're really willing to look at who are we answering to? That's part of where the stigma comes from. Is it the cultural one? Did our parents tell us it's not good? Did we watch parents who didn't go to therapy and bundled and you know, stuffed down their emotions? Is that where we took our cues from? When you become an adult, you have to have some set of rules that are your own. And if you're taking cues simply from your childhood and or from a negative place, you're gonna have problems. You innately have a stigma and a block attached going in. 
that's going to take a long time to fix unless you say, I'm going to listen to some other voice other than the ones I've been you know, having chatter in my ear. And I think there's a little apropos of our earlier conversation just a moment ago. I think there's a certain me- a measure of humility that comes up. If you're going to actually go ahead and process with another human being and be vulnerable about how you're mixed up about things with another human being and have them ask you questions about your vulnerability and how you are mixed up, a lot of guys don't want to do that. That's why coaching becomes a very interesting alternative because you don't really have to admit anything about yourself except you don't know where to go next. Can you give me a map? That doesn't have anything to do with who you are as a person. It doesn't have anything to do with where you screwed up. It doesn't have anything to do with your misperceptions or where you actually fell into a, an untold acceptance of a big lie that you actually should have known better. That's right. Owning it is, is to me, the bottom line. If you can own your stuff, you can grow. You're not to do that. There's going to be a block. There's going to be a wall that you hit that you can't get past growth-wise. I do believe culturally men are more suspect of this. They get in their own way more. We certainly have seen that in the last two years more than ever. Culturally, looking at you know things like, let's say, Harvey Weinstein, it's problematic across the board. So if men take the approach, well, what's the idea? Vulnerability is not weakness. It's actually actually the opposite. Certainly Brene Brown's messages, when you take that on, you get empowered and it puts you in a very different plane in terms of who you can help, who you can influence, and who you can connect with. An emotional connection is sort of everything. You know, it's the bottom line of our world. You know, to use a quote unquote manly phrase, it takes testicular fortitude to face up. You know, to go into somebody else, whether it's a man or a woman, and say, I don't get this. I'm a smart person. I know I'm okay, but I am stupid on this point, and I need some help. That doesn't make me a child. It doesn't make me inadequate. It makes me soft on a certain point. It's not a 100%. I think it's another thing that's important about stigma. I want to make sure I get in my, my pitch on the 100% reptilian thinking thing, okay? Because it's like if you are doing something with mental health, then you're a pervasive nut. Oh my God. Instead of, you look, you got this problem and you're working on a problem. It's interesting that a person can go to a business coach because it has a more cognitive aspect to it. There's no emotions tied up with it. And think about, hey, I'm having this problem. I need to get a a financial advisor to tell me what to do. Okay. That doesn't mean I'm completely stupid with money. It means in this particular case, I don't get it. I'm going to go ask for advice. But I think it's the same thing over in stigmatic thinking, if you'll forgive the expression, where a person says, I'm 100%. They say this to themselves. And of course, other people may wish to put that on them. But look, I'm not, I'm just have a problem right here. It doesn't mean I'm crazy. It doesn't mean I'm whacked out. Give me a break. And if you think that way, you're thinking from a reptilian perspective, and you need some transformational activity yourself, pal. That's right. I think you have to be willing to say, there's some things, you're not supposed to know everything. Right, right. It's impossible. You're not supposed to know everything. If you have those that makes you think you're supposed to, you probably do need some therapy. Yes. Well, now, I have a question that I'm going to ask you in, in just a second. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsors here, but I have a question that I think is absolutely germane to this level of conversation. We're, we've actually, I've loved this conversation with you. You're a great guy to talk to. You've got so many things you're thinking about, and we're actually talking about next steps. If, okay, we have a problem. We're thinking about the problem. we kind of broken down this whole thing of coaching and therapy 
and we're starting to look at ourselves a little more realistically. Now the key question, which I'm going to ask you when we come back, is if we decide to do something evolutionary with ourselves in a therapy, evolutionary, self-introspection way, how do we stop making excuses and move forward with that next step? That is a very, very key question, and I'm looking forward. We'll be back, folks, in just a moment to see what Jason tells us about his view of moving forward deliberately. We'll be back in just a moment. Today, the world of mind science, psychiatry, and mental health is rapidly changing with innovative, comprehensive testing that takes both patients and practitioners into a new world of measured details with useful, understandable, and remarkably actionable plans. The key phrase here is cost-effective. Testing also introduces a key parallel word, predictability. Psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medications, and our brief hospitalizations arises directly from the complexity of measurable brain-body imbalances and impediments that explicitly interfere with medical outcomes and create costly difficulties with inadequately informed supplement and medication trials over time. Great Plains provides a leadership team of biomedical experts with advanced laboratory insights approved nationally both by the FDA and CLIA laboratory certifications and is available internationally for both public and medical professions. Great Plains Laboratory is the primary laboratory we've used at CoreSight for years with excellent customer service for both patients and medical colleagues. They are on the spot. They get it every time. In addition, they provide exemplary training modules, which are webinars and conferences, in an effort to broaden practice perspectives wherever you live. Do follow up on one of these complimentary test offers today at http greatplainslaboratory.com forward slash CBJ. Yeah, that's Core Brain Journal CBJ. Well, Jason, thank you so much for coming back and talking to us. Jason, Eric Cross is with us, folks. And we've been having a very interesting conversation because we're talking kind of, as I said earlier, about the macro picture of what's, what's this whole mental health, what's going on with mind science in general. And we're getting down now to where the nose, the rubber meets the road, where we actually need to take some corrective action. So we asked the question, Jason, let's talk about how does a person really definitively move forward and stop making excuses and actually dealing with themselves in a more developmentally positive way. If I had to sum it up in one word, that word would be pain. It has to be you hit a bottom of some sort. They say pain is one of the greatest teachers, one of the greatest motivators, similar to fear. I happen to buy that completely. The idea of living with regret, some of the things that I've done, quote, accomplished, are largely due to fear of regret, if nothing else. However, I understood what the pain of suffering is, the pain of getting that regret. So I think a lot of people, unfortunately, no different than in addiction, as we typically say in recovery, you have to hit your bottom. Some people have a high bottom, some have a low bottom. I always joke that I understood that if you drank a lot, you would end up feeling really sick, throwing up, and probably be hovering over the porcelain goddess, they used to say. (laughs) That seemed like a really bad deal to me. I'm not like that bright a guy, but that seemed like 
that can't be good. Yeah, right. I don't see any reason to incite that. That's, that doesn't seem pleasurable at all. So why go there? Pain that drives you to say, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm willing to learn. You know, it is so true, Jason. I, I mean, I don't know if you've listened to any of the podcasts, but we pitch this point all the time. I don't say it every single meeting, but you and I are brothers on this point right here. There's no question about it. I mean, we're thinking very similarly in a lot of ways, but the learning from pain is the deal. People think pain is negative. It is negative only if you don't get it. That's right. If you don't get it, it's going to be painful because you are bound to repeat it. If you it get so, it. We were talking about, yeah, we were talking about the reptilian, right? That's yeah. kind of how it starts out. You have to know what pain is, your physical pain. And then once you understand emotional pain, that drives people. It's one of the two or both. And a lot of people, unfortunately, don't get the memo until too late. And some people, it takes a lot of a beating. I'd say it's a measure of emotional intelligence. And emotional intelligence, you know, I'd put EQ over IQ any day of the week. Yeah, let's talk a quick moment about that because some of our audience may not know emotional intelligence and IQ. Let's talk about that real quickly because I think it's a very good point and I'd like you please to elaborate for a moment on it. Certainly. I think I can give the best example. Perhaps you have an eight-year-old who seems to be very mature. They seem to be more responsive, more responsible, more thoughtful than the average eight-year-old. They actually seem more like a 13-year-old. That's a form of an expression of emotional intelligence. They appear emotionally more developed than their particular age. And the reverse is true. You can have a 13-year-old with the development of an eight-year-old. Their IQ may be good. You can have 140 IQ and still not behave or act your age, as we often hear. Isn't that so true? I mean, we see professors who are geniuses writing large extant physics equations up there and can't find a bathroom and That's have correct. all kinds of personal relationship issues because they're intelligent, but they actually haven't learned how to use their pain and grow up inside themselves to actually have interpersonal relationships that are constructive. Because you have to take some responsibility to change yourself to have emotional intelligence. The people who have yeah. emotional intelligence have taken the responsibility on and they are humble by definition because they're gonna admit very quickly, I didn't get that. I need to learn some more on that. That is something I don't get. Could you explain that? I think parents have struggled with this concept, particularly over the last 20 to 30 years. I think what came with social media, technology, the internet in particular, children started to sound smarter earlier. And parents with their own narcissism think, wow, look, I created this very bright child <laughs> who says all these fabulous words. And suddenly this seven-year-old's running the house. Problem is they don't have the emotional intelligence, which is the true power to carry it. And to me, I liken it to the force in Star Wars. You can use the force for good, you could use the force for evil. Children with emotional intelligence are like Luke Skywalker. That is such a good metaphor. I really appreciate that because all of us are so familiar with the message of the positive motivation, the developmentally positive motivation of a person with emotional intelligence who's going to make the contribution to humankind. They might think that deeply about it, but they're operating from a deeper perspective that if we work together, we're going to accomplish more than if we're sitting around doing our own thing and posturing, you know, posing. 
That's right. Sounding smart and being smart are two different things. I often have referred to the fact that the Unabomber went to Harvard. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. It's and a, uh, lo- a lovely school. Yeah, lovely school. Just he didn't get it. He didn't get the memo either. <laughs> yeah. And I think there was a real struggle with emotional intelligence there because he had trouble with people. You don't become a bomber if you, if you have no trouble with people. You get along with them. You might protect them. You're certainly not going to harm them. Well, and tied with emotional intelligence, Jason, is the concept of common sense. You know, what happens is a person who has, it looks intuitive, but I don't think people necessarily have intuitive. I've seen a lot of kids come up with as an old soul, but one of the reasons they're old souls is they're living in an old soul environment. That whole old soul environment is, look, here's the way these things get handled constructively. There is a person that did not handle it constructively. And that was the outcome. Somewhere in there, these old souls are really thinking more deeply and indeed more constructively about it using common sense. They have a better connection to people. And I think one of the problems we've seen, so I put when it comes to parenting, the emotional intelligence, how that's been handled, I'd say that's been a big problem in the last few decades. And this is as well because parents struggle to get their child to learn, hit bottom, see consequences, helicopter parenting really affected that. When the child's being constantly hovered over and not allowed to think for themselves, if you can't think for yourselves, your intelligence quotient isn't gonna go up much. Your common sense is gonna go out the window. And I think we can all agree that common sense is uncommon at this point. <laughs> so regrettably so. I mean, in the public medium, there it is. Oh my gosh, one more time. Right. So the next question then, which is a somewhat similar question, but it's taking this kind of nuance of how do we raise our kids? What do we specifically do? How do we think about what the mission is on this emotional intelligence issue? is the next question, which sort of lurks in everybody's background, how do you actually then build self-esteem, which is, I think, innately connected with uh, contentment and happiness? So how does all of that actually take place from your perspective, Jason? That might be the ultimate question, the $10 million. <laughs> yeah, right. Certainly in the top two. Well, it's got multiple answers, buddy. So we, you know that as well as I do. Yeah, this is a multi If this were on the family feud, there'd be like six to eight <laughs> yeah, parts right. to it. Yeah, right. <laughs> I've always asked the question, and I, I certainly learned this growing up and as a, watching my mother and her practice in particular. I asked parents, what's your job as a parent, and can you explain it in one sentence? And I used to ask that when I would do the family program at a treatment center. The majority of parents cannot answer that question with any other answer except, I want my child to be happy. Mm-hmm. I think that is the fault line of the problem. We want to build, the answer to the question should be, we want to build resilient children. And the way we do that is by setting limits, saying no to what is unreasonable, yes to what's reasonable, teaching them flexibility, flexibility of thought, letting them fall down, helping them get back up when useful, not always. They have to burn their hand. They have to learn consequences. If they learn that, and they have the consequences, innately, they're going to have enough self-esteem. If they have self-esteem, they're going to have resilience. And if they have resilience, they're going to figure out how to freaking be happy. And that's why we're struggling with 
higher rates of suicide, bullying, cyberbullying, obesity, anxiety, depression in teenagers, young adults, children. There's something wrong in the equation. And unfortunately, it starts with parenting. Well, I think another thing that's really a parallel to it, and I'm saying it slightly differently, I'm saying the same thing, but slightly differently, and we're drawing on our martial arts metaphor a little bit. I read Zen for a long time. I, you know, I had some difficult things that happened in my life with some people that I admired a great deal, and they turned out to be not so admirable. And mm-hmm. what happened was I was surprised because here I was, psychoanalyst, board certified in psychiatry, child and adult training. I'd written a book, the whole thing. I was really cooking along. And here I am surprised by what I don't know. And then I had to actually have an awakening experience. And, and really what happened in that whole thing is one phrase that's very parallel to what you're talking about is self-mastery. Now, how does a person develop self-mastery? The self-mastery, when a person actually handles something in a balanced manner, that's how they develop self-esteem. It isn't somebody did it for them, apropos of our earlier coaching conversation. This is where they go in and they negotiate what they're going to negotiate for themselves. It's going to have some measure of equanimity between themselves and the other person. In some constructive way, they're going to make some kind of constructive resolution or they're going to handle it in some constructive way so that they aren't down on the pavement when it, when it finishes. So when they do that, that is a self-mastery acquisition of self-mastery, and that is how self-esteem occurs. Because when you know you're handling yourself right, you're going to one way or another reach back without anybody seeing it and pat yourself on the back because you know that it was right. That's correct. Because you, you didn't harm that other person, you did not harm yourself, and you made a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Make it work. You go with the flow. And I think more than ever, we're seeing children struggle with being able to do that. That's Young right. adults, we're highly, you know, much more, I'm all for medication. I think there's a necessary piece to it. However, the numbers are much higher than they used to be. Mm-hmm. We're not functioning the way we once did. The resiliency isn't there. And there's, you know, multitude of factors, mm-hmm. but unless we address it, we don't improve societally. Well, I think that is, is such an important point. Let's talk a little more about you. I love this conversation. And let's turn for a moment. We've talked about some big problems and some resolution issues. Let's talk a little bit about where you personally are in your life in terms of the various activities that you have. I think it's really cool that you were doing the acting and being involved there with the, with the theater business. Because honestly, I think that a guy like you could really help the writers, could help the Actors think about there's got to be more of a, what would I say, humanitarian input to the whole thing, a deeper, a deeper perspective than here's another cookie cutter resolution to a cookie cutter problem. And I think a guy like you could really be very helpful in that regard. So tell us about what you actually do now and, and how people could contact you, for example, and what, what you do with that. Sure. My main job, for lack of a better term, my career has certainly been psychotherapist, I work my private practice, uh, do some interventions with families who are struggling with different mental health substance abuse issues, not per se in the common way that we might see it on TV. I happen to be licensed in New York and Florida, waiting actually on licensure as a professional counselor in the state of Georgia, which happens to be the third state where most of the actors work. So (laughs) that was not accidental. 
I decided that I had worked in treatment, I had worked in private practice a bit, and I just wanted to grow what I was doing, get my own mastery in terms of having the business that I wanted, and I continued to work at that, and it's, it's always going to be that. Even if I became a famous actor tomorrow, I would work my first career, my chosen career, to the day I die. I might do it differently, I might get a bigger pulpit to go on, which <laughs> is fine. I, I would be very happy to spend my life working at you know, reducing the stigma, that would be a dream come true. So I go back and forth between the two, certainly try to spread the word. One of the things I did, I just want to mention, at the end of 2016, going into 2017, I started taking classes at a place in New York City called the Upright Citizens Brigade Training Center. It's known as UCB. It was started by Amy Poehler and three other gentlemen, probably in around 99, 2000. Fabulous Training Center in New York and Los Angeles. One of the things they do exceptionally, aside from their improv and sketch and character training, is they are very well attuned to well-being and mental health issues. I found that to be really important. They actually have a staff member whose sole job is, this person's actually, I believe, a psychologist or a licensed clinical social worker. And her sole job is to manage the school from that perspective. And I think that's a fabulous idea that most schools, I've, I've never really come across that outside of, you know, a university here, we're talking comedy and all this, you know, fun stuff. And they're very attuned to making sure that the people have enough support personally, um, emotionally. And that's, you know, you can't beat that. So I was really impressed with that fact. That is such so, a, well, that's a cool job. <laughs> that is an extremely cool job because what's going on there, obviously, so many people who are in the profession, uh, and we have some family members who've been in the profession, which I won't go into here on the air here, but you know, we, we have high respect and high regard for people who've been on the inside. And we know what that life is like, and we appreciate the struggles that are there, and we know how much a person reveals themselves and becomes vulnerable in that situation because they're going to get very straightforward negatives. They may yes. get some accolades from the crowd, but they're going to get some real straightforward, this ain't working from people who they love and admire. The reinforcement is limited on the positive. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> when I started to take my training and decided that I was gonna finally follow through and become an actor, one of the things I joked about was in essence, look, I've worked really hard to build myself a nice career as a therapist. How can I throw this away? <laughs> ah, I have an idea. <laughs> Ouch, ouch, ouch. It didn't take me that long. Let me become uh, an actor because that's going to pay really poorly. That will kill you, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, yeah. that's why, you know, I've got a personal interest. We, uh, there's an, uh, I don't know if you know Seth Swarsky from L.A., but he's, he's into the same topic. I think, I think as a group, the whole situation with individuals who do such excellent work with entertainment, what happens is they kind of, in a way, without meaning to, set themselves apart from others because they are in a different reality. They go into a reality that very, very few people go into. And when they go into that reality, it's, it's another world. It's, it's beyond Mars, you know. And what happens is, because they're alone out there, then the whole trust element goes out the window because they have a certain measure of power and authority up there that they want to be very careful about. They don't want to give it away People are asking for it. People think they can rub it off by shaking hands or snapping a picture, whatever. And I think the issue there is they get into this authoritarian position, which it looks on the outside to an innocent like it's entitlement. 
Uh, and I think very often it's not entitlement. I think it's defensive safety. I think it's just a question of how do you be safe? And some of the people didn't really do the safety thing very well. You know, that's take uh, John Lennon. There are people who don't take the safety thing well, and then there are people who get all worked up with it. I don't know what actually happened to Robin Williams, but, you know, I think, you know, he died alone, basically. He, he if you listen to anybody make a comment about what happened to Robin, the situation was he was very, very alone because of some of what you and I are talking about right here. And this project that these folks are doing can help put some antidote to that whole poison of that situation along a life, a life journey. It breaks the stigma. I recently saw Anthony Robbins, Tony Robbins speak in Florida, mm -hmm. and he referenced Robin Williams. And what he did say, which I've always suspected and agree, and certainly you know, we'd agree with, is he was great at helping others, supporting mm -hmm. others, but internally he was struggling that much. And his struggles with substance abuse aside, he was always alone, grew his craft, but it didn't grow him personally where he was connected. And he was very alone inside. And unfortunately, truly died that way, as painful as the story is. I think too many people get disconnected. I agree with you entirely about the defensive part to protect themselves. There's a point where they realize no one's really out there for them. They are a piece of meat. I think mm -hmm. I went into this later, so my ego strength is a little different. I've had enough rejections in life where I almost work to get them because I'm not concerned about the outcome. <laughs> I have no concern about the outcome. I assume that probably won't go well, but who cares? I'm going to enjoy it. This isn't about the answer. <laughs> this is about my growth. I'm and, just going to reframe what you said there. You're going to chase the painful lesson. That's right. You're that's determined right. to get it. I'm the same way. I'm definitely the same way. We're, you know, that's one of the reasons we're taking the risk of coming out here. I mean, basically what happens is to come out here and I'm going to learn in front of everybody else, everybody that's listening. We have thousands of people listening to this and I'm going to learn in front of them because this does, I don't have to know everything. And if I don't get it right, you're going to tell me it's wrong and I'm going to be okay with that. And that whole thing works very, very well because then there's an exposure of vulnerability on my part with you. You're obviously doing a great job of being very vulnerable with me. And there's a connection that comes out of that. It works very well. And it, think of the number of people who are listening to us saying, thank you, guys. This works for me, too. Exactly. This is not complicated. You can't beat that. You can't. So let's close with where we can connect with you and... Let's also think as we're winding up doing this again, I have another topic which I'm going to mention to you offline when we get done that might be worthy of your consideration. And I don't, I don't doubt it will be. We, we, could have, we could talk about that. So how can people connect with you, Jason? The simplest way is follow me on social media. At Jason Eric Ross is usually the handle that I have. I'm the only Jason Eric Ross that I know of or have ever seen at that matter, so I'm lucky. JasonEricRoss.com, my website. Most of what I do, videos, etc., I post there simply because that's the way things are today. And I want to certainly keep up with the times. All those social connections are going to be there on the show notes. We think it's really important. I'm going to get hooked up with you myself on YouTube and all that stuff because I think it's really fun to have connections with a person like you. We're definitely on the same path. We're definitely brothers from a different mother, no question about it. We're Get the job done, break that stigma, talk to people, change the way things are done in some constructive way. You notice how there were not any negatives. In this conversation with you, there were not any negatives. We didn't have anything to say about anybody. 
that was gossipy, negative, whatever. We're saying, here's a constructive element. Here's another constructive element. It just depends on how you take that next step. And I think that's really a very important point. And I do very much appreciate your sharing this, your time with us. And I look forward to having you back on another time sometime. Thank you. It's an honor to be on. It really is. I really enjoyed it thoroughly. It's great Thank, stuff. Thanks, Jace. You have a great day, buddy. We'll talk sure. again. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Corbrain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications like those written for ADHD are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.